Well, the text that I just read, it's really strange. Uh, And if that was your first time hearing it, or if if maybe you remember the first time reading that story, and you probably had the response that I had, which was boredom, (laughs) uh, confusion, just pretty much uninterested. Uh, That's maybe what you feel after reading that, that text. And yet the early Christians, the people who first started following Jesus, found this story to be like foundational to their understanding of faith. This story is quoted many times in the New Testament. And what they, what they saw, what the early Christians saw in this story, was something so fundamental to, to life, to Jesus, that you could not understand Christianity, the way of Jesus, without understanding the story. I mean, it gets quoted several times in the New Testament. And they're right. This is a strange and yet really profound story, and, and I want to show you why. Um, and, and, and because ultimately, like this story, it's, a, it's about a question, a question every one of us will ask, and it starts in a place every one of us will get to. Right, there's an emotion we all fear that's at the heart of this text, and there's a question we will all ask that Abraham is asking God here. That once you peel away all the like confusion of what's going on here, there, it's, just a, it's about something Abraham feels and a question he will ask. And, and, and it starts in a place of feeling with Abraham, and he's afraid. All right, verse 1, uh, it's pretty clear what, what Abraham's state of mind is. The, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Uh, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very, very great. Fear not. And just a quick word, if you're like, who's Abram? It's, that's the same guy as Abraham. God will give him a new name. So I'm just going to call him Abraham for the sake. I'll probably call him Abram on accident a few times. But it's the same person. God just hasn't changed uh, his name. The word Abram means father. Abraham means father of many. So God's going to change his name later um, in the story. But, but what matters now is Abraham, he's here and he's afraid. And we, we should ask why. Why, is he, why does God feel the need to come to Abraham in a vision and say, don't be afraid? Well, last week, Andrew preached uh, on the first encounter we have with Abraham in the Bible storyline, which is Genesis chapter 12. And in that first encounter, God comes to Abraham and says to Abraham, basically, get out. Leave your, leave your family, leave your home country, leave everything that you know behind, and I want you to go to a land I will show you later. Abraham, leave. Leave everything behind and enter into life with me. And, and what God says to Abraham in that moment is, if, is if, you, if you come with me, if you enter into life with me, I'm going to do three things for you. One, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a, ch- a, ch- a child. Abraham didn't have any children. God says, I'm going to give you a child. Uh, secondly, God says to Abraham, to your child and to his descendants, I'm going to give them a land to live in, a place to call home. And thirdly, like your descendants are going to become so numerous, they're going to be a blessing to the entire world. So God makes that promise to, to Abraham, and Abraham goes. Right? He liquidates his financial assets. He leaves behind every relationship that's a fallback plan to him. He leaves his security, he leaves his family, and he goes to a land he doesn't know, alone with his immediate family in the wilderness. Right, this like isn't like moving to the other side of Kansas City. This is like going to a land where no one inhabits. Just think that out with me for a minute. The closest I've ever done to this, which is not impressive, to be, I mean, just to be clear, but the closest I've ever done to this is uh, <coughs> a, a, 
just the summer after my college graduation year, I went on a West Coast road trip, and one of the places that I went with two of my friends was Kings Canyon National Park in California. Uh, and it's a really great, it's a great place to visit because most people go to Yosemite, which is just to the north of Kings Canyon. So Kings Canyon was, it was completely empty. There's hardly anyone there. Um, and so it was really remote. It was quiet. Uh, and my two friends, there's a lot of mountains at Kings Canyon. They wanted to hike a mountain, which just does not make sense to me uh, why you would do that. Why would you want to climb very high and, and where there's no oxygen and put your life in? I, I, I didn't want to do that. So I stayed behind. They went to hike the mountain. Um, and, and, and so I was going to camp uh, in a remote campsite by myself. And to make matters worse, earlier that day, the park ranger had, had, made clear, had gone around and sort of made clear to everyone, hey, there, bears are everywhere right now. Uh, and I didn't know this, but bears, uh, they, no matter where you put your food, they smell it, and they're, they're going to do everything they can to try to get to it. So if you put your food uh, in a car, you're, you will, they will get into your car. Like, they will find a way into your car. And so they have these containers you put your food in. And so it's like, I, no, all of this was brand new to me, right? I'm suburbs boy who's never, never seen a bear. And now it's like, you, here's what you got to do with your food. They're everywhere. Here's what you do if you encounter um, a bear. And so that night, like, there I am in a campsite by myself, uh, and to be clear, like still, there's a car I can get, I can get out quick if I need to, uh, right? Like, I, I still have all the first world's trapping, but I just remember like it was the first time I really felt like truly alone in the universe. And like, it's just, it was, I was afraid, right? And multiply that times a million. And that's where Abraham finds himself. He, he has left God um, and le- or left his family, left his security, left his financial security to, to go into the wilderness, to be alone with God, with his immediate family. No wonder he's afraid, but it's actually, it actually is worse than that. So Genesis 12, God says, you know, go into a land I'll show you later. Make this bold act of faith. And I just like, just think through this question with me. So let's say you did something like that for God. And God said, go do this grand thing in faith to me. Leave all of your money behind, all of your family behind. Go to this place that's you're, you're alone. How would you expect God to respond to you? Right? You do this bold act of faith for God on his behalf. What do, you, like, what do you think God should do for you in response? Well, here's what he did for Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, right after Abraham leaves, he goes to the land God shows him, and there's a famine. And Abraham, either his family is going to starve to death, uh, which, you know, in our day of grocery stores, it's hard to relate to. That was, that was the most serious thing you could face in that day was famine. There's no food. There's no grocery store. There's nowhere to get food. So he has to flee to Egypt because he's going to die of a, if his family's going to die of a famine. So that's the first thing, right? There's famine. He almost dies. After that, uh, he has a serious falling out with his nephew, Lot, the only family member who came with Abraham. Uh, Abraham and Lot have a, a family drama, family strife, and they have to separate from one another. Lot goes this way. Abraham has to go this way. Soon after that happens, Abraham gets word that Lot, his nephew, has been captured by a, for, by a king and is kidnapped leave, uh, to a lot and his family. And, and Abraham now has to go to war to save his nephew's life. That's Genesis 12 through 14. Abraham does this grand gesture to God and God puts him through famine, family strife and drama, relational loss and, and war, <laughs> like violence threatening of life. So it's no wonder in Genesis 15 we read, after these things... The Lord came to, a, came to Abram in a vision and said, don't be afraid. 
It's been 24 years since Abraham left to go do life with God, and it's been, it's been, it's been famine, war, family strife. And today, in, in our day and age, there's, there's one, of a, uh, one of a couple of ways that you can approach God, if you're interested in Him, if you want to know Him. One is, is through, through your circumstances. And we approach God hoping He will change the circumstances of our life, make things easier on us, give us a better life, a better future, the life that we want. And one of the ideas that's taken real prominence in American Christianity, the, the cultural ethos you and, I, you and I live in, is that if you take up life with God, He will make your life better. Preachers on TV are very explicit about this. If you take up life with God, you'll have your best life now. Things will get better for you. you will, things will improve for you. Faith will lead to a better, more robust life. But it's not just the preachers on TV. Many churches teach this implicitly in that they, they, they suppress questions, doubts, uncertainties with God, frustrations with God. They suppress suffering and lament and the hard realities of life. They suppress things like death, the expectation that God will always heal and make life better. But you look at Abraham, and Frank, like this is, Abraham's not the only guy, but Abraham, who is, is described in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament as the paradigm of faith. Like if you want to know what life with God looks like, look at Abraham. It's both Testaments say that. You look at Abraham, and he takes up life with God, and everything gets worse. Right? Everything gets worse. His life completely falls apart. And so let me encourage you with this this morning. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm kind of half in jest, but I also like this is probably the most important thing that you need to believe. Because if you don't believe it, when life takes a turn, it's, you're, you, you will not be able to deal with it. But you, you have to believe this. So I'm half joking, but half like this is theologically so important to believe. If you take up life with God, he might wreck it. If you decide to take up life and faith with God, it does not mean things will get easier or better for you. God has, he has different interests. And so that's, but many of us try to approach God to get a hold of the circumstances of our life, right? To, I need a better, I need a, you know, a more stable job, right? You know, my kids, they've got this going on, or this is happening to me, and God will help me uh, change what's happening to me, and yet it, Abraham, if Abraham had approached God like that, he would have given up by now, because God made the circumstances of Abraham's life noticeably worse. And so don't approach God through circumstances. Don't, don't come to God hoping he will change downstream the circumstances of your life. Instead, there's a better way to approach God, which is what's happening here in Genesis 15, which is not to approach God through circumstances, but to approach God as your companion. No wonder, right, God comes to Abraham, don't be afraid. And then he, he uses a metaphor with Abraham that will become very important through the rest of Scripture, which is he says to Abraham, I am your shield. Think about what a shield is, right? A shield is not, it's not an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon. You put it up, things come at you, and you put the shield between you and those things. And God is, is not, right, you sit to the metaphor, God is, is saying, I'm not, I'm not going to change the, the things in front of you, Abraham. I'm your defense against them. And my favorite place where this metaphor is used is in Psalm 3. And in Psalm 3, David is meditating on, he has immense trouble in his life. And he uses the metaphor, this is probably literal for David, but for us, think more metaphorically. David probably literally had armies of people who wanted to kill him, who surrounded him on every side. This is about as fearful as it can get, right? When there's people who want to kill you and they've surrounded you. 
And that's the image David gets. But, but like we get there, right? There's trouble. There's trouble surrounding us. And so David, he's, he's meditating on the trouble that's all around him, the circumstances of his, of his life, which have gone, fallen apart. And he prays this in, in, Psalm, uh, in Psalm 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Right? There's trouble all around me, but you, O Lord, you are my shield, my glory and the lifter of my head. So I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. The images of, of David surrounded by people who want to kill him, and he's sleeping. Which, like, if you've ever been to war, it's not a good strategy to stay alive very long. It's to sleep when you're surrounded. But David can because he, he has a shield. Right? The Lord is his shield around him. And, and I, can you see why so many Christians were drawn to this Genesis 15 text as a, like it's a crucial way to understand what life with God meant? Abraham is surrounded by terrible circumstances, and God comes to him and says, I'm your shield. Right? I'm your protector. Don't be afraid, Abraham. And yet, it doesn't stop there, right? Because I think a lot of times, in, in, especially in the church world and Christian world, it's like we give, the verse is given, and it's like, okay, everything's okay now. But everything's not okay. Abraham's still afraid, right? And so the conversation can, continues. And, and so God says to Abraham, don't be afraid, I'm your shield. And then Abraham starts in on God. And he says to God, uh, listen, you told me you were going to give me a child, and it's uh, we know this from, from the timeline. It's been 24 years. Abraham's an older man now. This, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And Abraham's basically saying to God, you said you were going to do something and you haven't done it. Right? I'm getting old. God, will you, will you do what you promised me that you, will, you said you were going to do? And, and Abraham is asking a question that all of us will ask at some point. Which is, God, how can I know that if I take up life with you, you will do everything you've promised me. That I won't get, you know, I won't get halfway down the road of life and, and find that you are not faithful to your promises, the things that you have said. And every person in this room, whether you're on the outside of faith and you're wondering, do I want to get on the inside? Or if you're a Christian, you will ask this question, how, how can I know that there is a God in heaven who will keep his promises to me? Which is the, the, the question Abraham gets to um, in, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 8. It says, oh, Lord God, um, how am I to know? And he's, he's leaning right into all the promises God has made. God, how am I to know that you will do what you said you will do? Because there's 24 years of history of famine and war and family drama and no promises being, being completed. So how am I to know, God, that you will keep your, your word? And God will give a, a moving and powerful answer to that question, which we'll get to in a second. But before we get to God's response, to Abraham's question, how, how am I to know that you will keep your promises to me? I want to give you two thoughts first that's happening in the story. The first is that God does not rebuke Abraham for his doubts or his pointed questions. Right? God doesn't say, how dare you question me? I'm God, you're Abraham. Right? You wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, he actually enters into a dialogue with Abraham and and. And I think the important implication for us is that what that means, like doubts and, and uncertainties and questions around God and his promises are okay in the community of God's people. It's okay. 
And if you have questions, if you have doubts or uncertainties about God, it's a, bring those questions, right? That I, I would say, and, and if, again, Abraham is the paradigm of faith in the Bible storyline. And so if Abraham had questions and doubts, it, it would seem to suggest that questions of God are not antithetical to faith. They are, they are with faith, right? They're a part of faith. I think of it like this. My, uh, my favorite chair that we own, the most comfortable chair that we own, is from Ikea. Uh, it's this. It's called the, I always hate, I feel like I'm, you know, culture, culturally appropriating uh, Sweden by doing this. It's the Poang chair. I don't know how to pronounce that. Sorry if you're Swedish. You know, I don't, I don't get it. Um, but I look at this chair, and, and listen, here, all the chairs we're sitting on right now, or you're sitting on, they have four legs. This chair has two legs. And for a long time, it was like, I don't know how that works, right? Like, I don't, I, and if, if I sit on that chair, I feel like I'm going to end up on the floor, especially if I'm the one who builds the chair. And if you know IKEA, you are the one who builds uh, the chair. Um, <clears throat> but here's the thing. Like, you're only going to ask the question, is that chair going to break if I sit in it, if you're actually going to put your full weight in the chair, Right, if you're just buying it for decoration, who cares if it works or not, right? Or if, if you're just going to use it as a book uh, to, you know, throw your books on, who cares? It's only if you're going to put your full weight into the chair, you're going to sit down in it, that it has to hold you. And I think the reason why God does not rebuke Abraham is because Abraham, he's sitting in the chair. He's put his full weight in life into God's hands. He, like, he has faith. Abraham has not left himself a backup plan, a parachute, a plan B, right? He's not, he's not just testing God out of it. He's thrown all in with God. He's sat completely. He's put his full weight into, into who God is, and it's why God doesn't rebuke Abraham, right? Because Abraham's basically asking God, can you hold my whole life in your hand? Can you, can you take everything I'm giving you because I'm holding nothing back? And if you let me down, God, if you are not good to your promises, I don't have another plan, right? I've left my home, like I've left everything for you, God. And, and here's what, if you put your full life and weight into the way of Jesus, you, at, you will ask, will it hold? You will. And the, oh, this may be going a little too far, but I want to push. Um, if you've never asked that question, if you've never wondered, can, will God's promises hold true to me? I would probably ask, are you, are you sitting full weight in life, is all of your life with God? Or do you have a backup plan to where you never have to ask the question? Because if God fails you, well, I've got this thing. I've got my money over here. I've got my career over here. I've got my kids over here. It's only people who have said to God, you're it. You're all I have. Who will get to this point Abraham gets to, which is to ask, God, will your promises hold? they have to, right? He has nothing else to turn back to. And it's why we get this, this, this response of God in, to Abraham in verse 6, which becomes one of the most quoted lines in the Hebrew Scriptures in the New Testament, where God, uh, you know, through, through Moses who's writing this, he says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham doesn't just believe in God. He believes God. As Genesis 15, Abraham believes the Lord. Now, he doesn't believe in the Lord. He believes the Lord. So what's the difference? In Hebrews 6, it's helpful here. It's another passage in the New Testament that's it's riffing. It's reflecting on Genesis chapter 15. And here's what uh, Hebrews 6 uh, says, what it writes. 
So, so when, and when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's Abraham he's in, and us, we're heirs to the promise, when he wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And, and he's referring to what's about to happen in Genesis 15, which we haven't talked about. Right, so going on in Hebrews 6, so that we who have fled for refuge, right, we who have gone to Jesus as our shield, fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steady, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The Hebrews 6 is saying that God made promises to Abraham so that Abraham could have an anchor for his soul. Now, we live in Kansas, and so I might have to explain the anchor metaphor because we're a long way from a sea uh, here. I know that's a little condescending, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> right? So it, an anchor uh, in a real sea, right, If you have to drop it all the way down to the bottom for it to hold. And if you don't, uh, especially in the ocean, like the waves will blow your boat wherever, like off course. You'll, you'll end up somewhere where you never intended to be. The anchor is to, to drop all the way down to the bottom of the sea, and it holds you in place no matter what happens. In Hebrews 6, it's, it's, ripping, it's ripping off of, of that idea. And I think when I, when I first believed in God, I think what I was really doing was trying to get control of the circumstances of my life. Or like God is the means by which I can have a good job or like have the life that I want or make, good, make sure that good things happen to me. And if I'm good to God, He will be good in response to me. But that's not an anchored soul. That's a life for circumstances. And I think a lot of us live there. We haven't dropped the anchor all the way down. God is still a means to get better circumstances. We're not meeting him as our companion. We're meeting him to better our life or better our circumstances. And if you do that, you'll be blown around in life, depending on the circumstances of your life. And look what God did to Abraham. And if Abraham, the paradigm of faith, went through famine and war and family drama and strife and family, uh, you know, relationships falling apart. If Abraham, the paradigm of faith, went through that, what will we go through? God is not a means to guarantee a better life in front of you. And what is happening in Genesis 15 is God is bringing Abraham to real biblical Faith, not about believing in God to, to get a better life for yourself, but to believe the Lord and make your life about knowing and being with the God of the universe. And that's dropping the anchor all the way down to the bottom of the sea to say the circumstances of my life are irrelevant. What is relevant is the Lord, is God in my life. Right? Abraham no longer wants God so that he can get a child from God, so that he can get his circumstances under control. He stopped believing in the Lord. He, stopped, he started believing the Lord. He wants God for God, not what God can give him. And when you get to that place where you believe the Lord, where you just, your life is about a companionship with the God of the universe, you can experience famine, but you still have God. You can lose a family relationship that's meaningful to you, but you still have God. You can go to war, like your, your life can be threatened, but you still have God. And you can sit like Abraham. This is 25 years of God not, making the, not fulfilling the promises he had made to Abraham and instead taking Abraham through a tremendous amount of suffering in life. And you can still be like Abraham sitting here waiting. You have your companion. And that's what he believed the Lord. He said, all right, God, you, the promises you have in front of me, you will do them, and my life will be built on the fact that you will keep your promises to me. This is happening here, and, and yet the question is still there. Well, how do, how do we know 
that God will keep the promises out in front of us, right? For those of us who are in the way of Jesus, that he will forgive our sins, he will bring us into the new heavens, new earth. Like, how do, we, how do we know those promises will be held for us, especially when circumstances fail us? That's when you really start to ask the question. And what happens is God makes, he makes an oath, a covenant to Abraham, and it's really weird for us. But it wouldn't have been weird to them. It would have been really powerful to them. And so what God says, okay, Abraham, you want to know how I will keep my promises to you no matter what. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get some animals. Abraham goes and gets the animals. Then I want you, this is where it gets weird, um, and then I want, you, I want you to slaughter the animals, and I want you to cut them in half. All right, and that's weird, but some of you, you're going to have five guys for lunch later. They did the same thing. You just didn't see it, okay? <clears throat> he slays the animals, cuts them in half, and then he lines up the animals on two sides. And what that, what that is, is that, that, was a, that was how they did covenants, how they did contracts in their day and age. And we don't do that anymore. Um, we sign pieces of paper. That's, that's our equivalent to today. So, you know, if I, as a pastor, I've done weddings before. You know, what happens is you finish the ceremony. Typically, I'll do this before the ceremony. I'll go to the, 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 the groom. Hey, you got to sign right here. He signs. Uh, the, you go to the bride. She signs. Then I sign. Then you mail off to the state. And then it's official, right? That's a contract. We do it through signatures. And I think the people back then would say, like, if, the, if you know, Abraham came to us today, he'd be like, you guys don't mean what you say. You just write your name. That's all you do. Because what, what, this, what this ceremony was meant to do was when you entered into an agreement with someone, what you were saying is you cut the animals in half and then you would walk between them. And as you walked between the animals, what you were saying was, if I don't keep my word to you, if I don't, if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do for you, may I be like these animals? Dead, cut in half, birds picking at my carcass. May I be like that? It's a very, it's a very memorable experience, right? It's like you would remember that. And before you thought about breaking your word to someone else, it's like, ah, oh, do I want to be like that? You know, cow cut in half? I don't think so. Like you would, th- it would be this this memorable action and liturgy you would go through to say, like, I'm making these promises to you. I'm going to keep them. And so that's what that's what's happening here. Is God is is saying to Abraham, I want to enter into a covenant with you. And so Abraham cuts the animals in half. He sets everything up, and he falls asleep. And this is what happens in in verse 17. Actually, no, I want to read first uh, in in verse 15. uh, Before Abraham falls asleep, it says, The sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, uh, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It was like Abraham is in a place of of terror (laughs) to some extent. He's... He's, this is a dark place. He's, like God is, is present with him, and yet it's not, it's not so much good news as, as dreadful news. You have this set up, and then Abraham falls asleep, and he wakes up to a vision, and this is what's happening with this covenant, with this contract, with these animals. Verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now what's going on? We don't know exactly what uh, the smoking fire pot and flaming torch were, but these, we do know what these words refer to. It's, it's smoke and it's fire. And the other two places these words show up together, the, the, the next place is on Mount Sinai when Moses is meeting with God directly and God gives him the Ten Commandments. We read there's smoke and there's fire. And then later as God is leading uh, the whole nation of Israel, out of slavery into Egypt, which is referenced here in Genesis 15, into 
the promised land, where they follow a pillar of smoke, right? They, they follow the, what's, what's referred to as smoke and fire. And so these two words, the smoke and the fire, it, it's the presence of God, right? And God doesn't, he doesn't have a body like us, so he's not going to show up as a body, but he shows up as smoke and fire. And Abraham sees the smoke and fire, the presence of God, pass through the animals to make a covenant with Abraham, and so the smoke, the smoke, the fire, it's the presence of God. And so one teacher of this t- text said, this is sort of what Abraham is seeing. At that minute, suddenly in the midst of the darkness, a searing streak of lightning appeared and held its shape. It spread fire, smoke, sparks. That's why Abraham, he's not just, he's feeling dread, he's darkness. And so God shows up and he passes between the animal pieces. And that means very little to us, but that, this would have been very, this would have been stunning to the people who are reading Genesis. Because if, if you and I, if we're going to, if God's going to become our companion, if we're going to believe the Lord, we have two problems. The first problem is what we've been talking about all morning, which is how, if we give our life to God, how do we know that he will keep his promises to us? How do we know that? Because God can do whatever he wants, right? He's powerful. He's, there's no limits to him. How do we know he will he will keep his words to us, measly human beings. And what God is doing by passing through the pieces is saying to Abraham, if I break my promise to you, Abraham, may I be cut in half. May I, a mortal God of the universe, become mortal and, and, and killed. Right? May I, powerful God of the universe, become powerful and, and be picked apart by the birds. God is saying to Abraham, I will, I will die before I break my promise to you. And to an ancient audience, this would have been stunning because kings and powerful like human beings would offer enter into covenants with like their lessers, right? The, the servants. And very, very rarely would kings actually pass through the animals because they didn't have to. Right? It's like, you know, I'm the king, you're lucky to know me, you my servants, you pass through the animals, and you, you die if you break your promise to me, but I'm not going to make my promise. And occasionally a king would pass through. And here's, it's not just a king, it's, like, it's the God of the universe saying to Abraham, yes, 24, 25 years of disappointment, but Abraham, I've made promises to you, and if I break them, I will die. That's what he's saying to Abraham in this moment. It's incredible. And if, you, like if you're in the position this morning where you're asking the question, how, how can I give my like, trust to God, given the circumstances of my life, given everything I'm walking through, how can I trust God in this moment? Here, like this is, Christians saw this and said, it's still true for us today in Jesus. God has said, before I break my promises to you, I will die. And that's moving, but it doesn't address, it doesn't address the real problem. Because faith in God, uh, that God will do what he says, that's, that's difficult. But the real problem we all have is not what if God breaks his promises to me. The real problem we all have is what happens when I break my promises to God, which all of us do. Right? How can, uh, God can look at me and ask me the same question. Okay, Tim, how can I know that you will be faithful to me? How can I know that if I enter into this covenant with you, you know, measly 10, how can I know you will keep your word and do everything that you've said to me? Because I won't. And you and every person in this room, we won't. And that's the stunning part of Genesis 15 is that God, 
passes through the pieces, but Abraham doesn't. God doesn't expect Abraham to say to God, okay, God, if, I, if I'm ever unfaithful to you, may you cut me in half, because he will be. And like two verses later, Abraham's going to sin again. But God doesn't make Abraham pass through the pieces. Only God passes through the pieces. And what he's saying in that moment is, is, okay, if I break my promises to you, Abraham, may I be cut in half. And Abraham, if you break your promises to me, may I be cut in half. I assume the full weight of the covenant responsibilities. And there is no king, there's no God, there's no being in the universe who would ever do this for you, except for this one God of the Bible in this incredibly strange story. And, and if you trace this, th- this thread from Genesis 15 all the way into the New Testament to Jesus, it's not hard to see why Christians saw this. Genesis 15 doesn't make sense until you get to the cross, right? Like, how can God be torn in two? How can God die if we break our promises to him or if he breaks his promise? How, like, how can the mortal become or immortal become mortal? How can the powerful become powerless? How can the, right, the God who can't die, die? Like, how can that happen? And you trace that all the way to Jesus. And what you find is Jesus on the cross suffering for our unfaithfulness to the promises of God, for our unfaithfulness to the covenants of of what God has offered us. And Jesus on the cross, what he's saying to you and me is I am, I am keeping my promises to you. And even though you have not kept your promises to me, you can still, I can still be your companion, right? You can still know me. You can still enter into life with me through, through faith. Do you see like what it means that God is our shield? Like there's two just really powerful truths in that metaphor. One is that Jesus absorbs all of our failures into himself. He absorbs all of our sins, our shortcomings, the things we've done and said we wish we had not son and dad. He takes them on himself, our unfaithfulness to the covenant. He's the one who's torn apart in two. He is the one whose, whose body goes into the grave, suffering the consequences of those unfaithfulness, which is what a shield does, right? A shield says, I will, take the, I will take all of the violence coming your way and I will stand between you and, and it. He takes all of those things on for us, dying for us. That's one half of the metaphor of the shield. The other half that, that Genesis 15, 6 points to is it not just that God stands and says, okay, I'll absorb all of the bad stuff um, that, that you get because we're still left. Like, well, I'm still a broken sinner. What does that mean? That's why Genesis 15, 6 doesn't just say that Abraham believed the Lord, but Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. And what the the New Testament authors would later say is it's not just that Jesus on the cross absorbs our our sin and our our unfaithfulness. He actually then exchanges his right. He gives us his righteousness. Right? We come to him in faith. Jesus, I'm sitting my whole life into your hands and he takes on our sin and he gives us his righteousness, his perfection, his beauty, his wholeness. Right? That, that's, that's the exchange that happens. It's like, well, that's not fair. He gets, he gets all of the bad things and we get all of the good things. It's like, yes, that's what's happening in Genesis 15. God passes through the pieces. We don't. And what a promise that is. A deep anchor for our souls, which is like, why would you ever just come to God to make your circumstances slightly better when what's on offer is something so much richer and deeper and more beautiful? But you only get it if God's your companion. You can't just believe in God and, 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 and God's some this distant figure in your, no, you have to believe the Lord. He must become your companion. You must let him go through the pieces, not you. You must receive the righteousness, the gift that he's offering you on his cross. You must receive the fact he didn't sign his name on a piece of paper to have you back. He gave his own 
life, and he will, re- he will receive nothing less from us in return than our full faith and weight in life given back to him, knowing that whatever's ahead in a life with Jesus, which is not necessarily better circumstances, but whatever is ahead in a life with Jesus, he, he will be faithful to his promises. And I know that, I know that because of a cross. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we open your word and as, we, as we, we meditate on the gospel, in many ways, Lord, it feels too good to be true. It feels unrealistic. And yet, God, this is, our, this is our hope. And so I pray for every person in this room who's already a Christian, that you would be even more so their companion. They would see even more your love, your sacrifice, your death, your gift to them. And for anyone who isn't in the way of, of Jesus, who doesn't know Jesus, God, um, man, make this, make this story true in their hearts. I pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen.